where else do you find a lot of missing kids, right? The county fair. We had a call for a, a missing eight-year-old. And we get a description of his clothing. The parents remember what he was wearing. It's great. Mom and dad hadn't been drinking. He just got separated from them in the crowd in the in the carnival area. And they, they went to find him. They couldn't. And so we all spread out throughout the county fair. We've got our radios. We're looking for him. Hey, Steve here. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project, where we explore topics that make me curious and that I hope will do the same for you. Let me introduce you to Chris Boyer, an old friend of mine who has one of the most important and interesting jobs there is, and it's related to that story that he just started to tell you. We'll get back to that a bit later. So to start this episode, I asked Chris to describe how we met. Wow. So so that's a story back in the dark ages, Steve. <laughs> it, it will reveal both your age and my age. You had just come from Spain to California. And I had just gotten out of Marine Corps boot camp and been posted to California. And uh, we both uh, intersected at the Sea Hut, uh, our mutual interest in scuba diving. And uh, you became very much for me a, a role model. It's where I first started teaching and, and got the teaching bug. And look at what you have brought. I love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's great praise, and I appreciate it. So let's let's talk a little bit about what it is that you're doing, because you work for an organization, a nonprofit, that I'm going to wager very few people, if anyone, that are listening to this show have ever even heard of, okay? Tell us a little bit about it, and I'd like to know kind of how you got there. I mean, look, I look back on you and and remember you as you were and see you as you are here. And I go, yep, that's a perfect kind of a transition period. That that That's exactly where I would expect Chris to end up. Tell us about it. Yeah. So so that's a 40-year a story. So let's, let's try to do it in under 40 minutes, right? So NASAR, National Association for Search and Rescue, it's a nonprofit. It's been around since 1973. It started with state SAR coordinators. And it, it's there because most people don't realize that search and rescue throughout the United States is done by all volunteers. There are very few, if any, agencies that have full-time search and rescue personnel attached to them. Now, the National Park Service has some search and rescue rangers, but it's an ancillary duty. You know, they've got to do other things. They've got docent stuff. And they have some specialty search and rescue rangers, like the high-angle rescue guys out of Yosemite. But in general, it's all volunteers. It's, it's the one place that life-saving occurs that's all volunteers. And I think that and for a, a, we can do a whole nother episode on why fire departments in the United States are still 80% volunteer fire departments. But it's that one place where stewardship for your community still occurs uh, with all these highly trained professional search and rescue volunteers. And I got here um, because I was in the Marine Corps giving back to, uh, to the country that I love. At the same time, I was doing high tech. I was in the Marine Corps Reserves. And um, after that ended, I became a reserve deputy with uh, the local sheriff in in our county there in California, where you and I lived. And um, I became part of their search and rescue team because search and rescue in California is legislated to the local sheriff. And through time, I, I made that hobby my career. I became the emergency manager for the county, 19th largest county in California, and um, was the emergency manager there for a number of years, their SAR team leader for a number of years. And um, I retired. I got old enough. 
And uh, I got picked up by a uh, international emergency management company that moved me to Texas. And I, I worked with them for about four years. And then uh, NASAR was looking for a new executive director. They, uh, their executive director was uh, retiring. And uh, I had some friends there that uh, approached me and it uh, sounded like an interesting gig. And uh, once again, I, I moved my hobby higher into my career path. And so here I am. Well, we certainly have that in common. I mean, I, a friend of mine once said to me, you know, I kind of hate you a little bit because you're one of those people that's managed to figure out a way to turn your hobbies into your actual job and actually make money doing them. So, you know, it's, I think, you know, we're both lucky in that regard. So when I talk to you, one of the things that I hear are two different terms, SAR and USAR, or USAR. Tell me a little bit about those and how do they differ? Yeah, so when when a lot of people hear about search and rescue now, they they think 9-11. They think firefighters peeling back the pile. Um, they think of tornadoes. But they also think of the missing child, the abducted child, the missing hiker or hunter. So there are two types of search and rescue in the United States. And urban search and rescue is what we call an open population search and rescue. You have a defined geographic area where you have a disaster, either a tornado, earthquake, whatever, and you have a lot of people in it that need help. You don't know how many people. That's how the open population is. And so you start working in from the perimeter. You start peeling back the layers of this problem until you're down to mineral earth and you've rescued everybody or recovered everyone. So that's urban search and rescue. On the other side, the, the standard search and rescue is wilderness search and rescue, what we call it. And that's a closed population. We know who's missing, but we don't know what the geographically defined area is that they're missing in maybe. So they're exactly the opposite problem, right? Urban search and rescue, we know where the problem is. We just don't know how big it is, how many people are in it. With wilderness, we know how many people we're looking for. We just don't know where they are. And, and so they're, they're totally different skill sets to a certain extent. Urban search and rescue, you need to worry about environment, hazmat, um, heavy lifting of articles near you, cranes, all that sort of thing. And in the wilderness area, you've got to worry about snakes and ticks and hiking and, and backpacking in what you need and getting that person out. So the wilderness is what NASAR really focuses on. And although we say wilderness, you can use those same skills to look for a single missing person in an urban environment a rural environment, a suburban environment, or an austere uh, wilderness environment. So let's, uh, let's look at a scenario. Somebody gets lost. Tell me what happens. Walk me through the kind of through the process. So first we hope that we hope that they did some preventative measures on their, their part, right? They left an itinerary. Uh, we know where they're going. They've got some sort of electronic device on them that we can track, uh, et cetera. But if that didn't happen, then what typically occurs is you have a loved one or a family member who notices this person's overdue. They're not always lost. They're missing. And they're not where they're supposed to be at a certain time. So hopefully that person calls 911 right away. In no state is there any legislation that requires that you wait, quote, 24 hours like people see on the TV. No. In reality, the federal law says that we have to take a missing person report, law enforcement does, immediately when you call about it, and they have to insert that person, if they're at risk, into the 
NCIC missing person file right away so that we can all be looking for that person everywhere. And then once that person calls that local law enforcement agency to, to file that missing person report, in a perfect world, that law enforcement agency would have a search and rescue team or resource that they would call on that would begin to work with the investigators to figure out where that person went and locate them, access them, stabilize them, and transport them back into the the, uh, pre-hospital care system. That's not how it always happens because search and rescue is different in each state. And so the reporting process all occurs the same pretty much for every law enforcement agency. It's the response part that's different in state by state. Are there standards for training and response? If you go to California, search and rescue in California is legislated to the 58 county sheriffs. California government code 26614 and 26614.5. And each of those 58 county sheriffs has a volunteer uniformed cadre of professionally trained search and rescue responders. They're all volunteers. And you go to San Bernardino County and, and our friends in San Bernardino, 22 different search and rescue teams, because that's a huge county, and over 2,500 members in that county alone. You've got a desert rescue squad out in Barstow, and I'll shout out to Daryl uh, out at the desert rescue squad. You've got the uh, Rim of the World and the, and the guys up in the San Gregonios. You've got uh, a search and rescue team down in Redlands that deal mostly with missing kids and, and Alzheimer's walkaways and that sort of thing in the town. So that's California, very structured. When you call, you've got volunteers right at the end of that, uh, that law enforcement leash, and they know exactly what to do, and they're very professional. If you skip a couple of states east and you come to Texas, there is no legislation for search and rescue in Texas. There's nobody in charge. And so just in the, the area that I live in, there are six or seven teams, and they all compete. They don't necessarily work together, and they don't necessarily work at the behest of law enforcement which is what they should do. You have teams that will work directly with the family. They'll ask for donations and money. They may be charlatans. They may not be true search and rescue people. They may just be there for the press and for the, uh, for the donations and the money. And so that's the part that is, is not quite the same everywhere. You go up to Maine, it's the game wardens in charge. You go to Florida, nobody's in charge. Uh, you go to Indiana, nobody's in charge. You go to the state of Washington. Ah, the sheriff's in charge there. You know, the larger Western states have a structure. The Eastern states, not so much because they all started as Commonwealth states. So that lends us into that position. That's got to create problems. I mean, that's got to create, I mean, beyond the obvious, just, just from a, from a standard setting point of view. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I work in the world of telecom tech, and as you know, as you have as well, t- standards are kind of important to create, well, standard behavior across the board. Why has this not been dealt with? Why, why, why has this been allowed to be? Yeah, so, so you've got a good question there. And, and, and the way we look at it is, why does a citizen in California, a resident of California, deserve a better response than a resident in Texas or a resident in Pennsylvania or Iowa? It comes down to legislation and getting the folks that are responsible for writing that legislation to understand the value of the volunteers and the value of standards and and standardization. 
We've worked diligently with Ohio and Maryland to help them develop new standards uh, and, and legislation adopting those standards. But NASAR is not as big as like NFPA. And NFPA, the National Fire folks, they have a huge lobby and they're able to push standards out to all the fire departments. We don't have a lobbyist. We don't have millions and millions of dollars. We're a very small organization. And so what we do is we focus on that grassroots education and certification. We take the standards that are written by ASTM and NFPA and the Canadian Standards Association. We develop education to train people to meet that standard. And then we develop testing and certification that says, yeah, they, they did meet the standard and it's good for X number of years. And, and that's what we, we do. And we do it team by team with the thousands of teams out there in the United States and other, other countries. So with regard to this then, what kinds of certifications, what kinds of programs, what kinds of courses does your organization put out there? Our focus is on ground search and rescue. That means that we train people to be non-wilderness searchers or wilderness searchers or backcountry wilderness searchers. And we provide the testing and certification for all those things. So they, they encourage skills like navigation with map and compass, not tying overland or over snow travel, uh, survival skills, but also things like operational search theory, which goes back to World War II, where we had boats looking for submarines. A lot of that search theory is now moved forward, and we use it looking for that lost person in the wilderness. We also use the incident command system to set up the overhead management for how we do this, because you've got to get a lot of people together, get them out in the field, provide them with logistics of food and water, and be prepared that maybe one of them gets hurt during the search, or you find that that missing person injured, and you need to provide then a rescue team that can access them, that can stabilize them, and then start transporting them back or prepare them for transport by helicopter. So we have a lot of, of different types of skill sets wrapped up in there. There's technical rescue with uh, ropes. There's using dogs as detectors. A lot of very complex stuff goes into a search, which is why having those standards is so important and why having legislative responsibility is also very important. And, and one of the things I wanted to add here about, about the standards is that in California, again, where they have a very mature and complex model, their model includes the ability to do uh, mutual aid. So if one county is searching for someone and they all get tired, they can call the next county and get free help. That doesn't exist in other places because there may be competitiveness, there may be other political issues between the teams where that team tends to hold on to the search and maybe that missing person and that missing person's family doesn't get the service that they should. They should be able to get more people for free. Political issues shouldn't punish that missing person and, and make them miss out on, on a better search. The other part is that you've got all these volunteers going out there and they're putting forth a lot of hours into the training. The stuff that we do is perishable, it's complex, and they need to practice it a lot. And they're going out, the mechanism of, of missing or mechanism of injury for that missing person may also be a risk for that 
that volunteer. And if that volunteer then gets hurt, who takes care of the volunteer? Now they're out of work for X number of weeks or months, or maybe they even are, are out of work, period. So in California, they have a program called the Disaster Service Worker Program that covers all of the, the volunteers in search and rescue for the sheriff's department. It covers them for short-term and long-term disability, workers' comp, a death disability, and it covers them during training and during searches. So those volunteers are well taken care of. You come to, to Texas, and if you get hurt or killed during a search, your family is kind of SOL. You, you, they don't get anything unless they had their own insurance, nothing to cover them or take care of them. And the volunteers that are willing to put forward and be stewards in their community deserve better protections. And that's one of the things that I think the standards will also bring forward is, is those volunteer protections that are so, so badly needed in a lot of states. If any function needs to be devoid of political game playing, it's this. Yes, yes. And, and you're correct there. It's the, the politics shouldn't play here. But as we've seen over the past decade, my team in California, if, if a homeless person was called in missing, we'd go look for them. If a, what we would call a repeat offender, right? Uh, a 12 year old kid that's run away three times. And this is the fourth time and they always come home, but we go out looking for them because everybody deserves a full court, full press effort uh, looking for them, regardless of their station in life or any other measure of that human being. But you don't find that in other states or on other teams because some of them are small enough that they have to kind of look at it and pick and choose what they'll what they'll put their time towards because they don't have all the resources in the world because, oh, wait, no mutual aid system. So uh, they got nobody to fall back on if they go looking for every single person that gets reported missing. But every single person deserves that full court press. If people want to learn more about your organization and what you do, or if they want to get involved in some way, or they want to advocate on behalf of search and rescue in their own communities and so on, what can they do? Well, the, the first thing they can do is volunteer. I, I would urge them to, to reach out to their county sheriff, see who that sheriff calls for search and rescue, because the sheriff owns the unincorporated area, which typically includes parks. And so that's why we contact them. Get with that sheriff and find the team that they use and volunteer with that team. Learn those standards, train with that team, deploy with that team and help out in your community. With NASAR, we provide that background education and certification. We don't do deployment of, of, of resources. The way you can support us is by um, using our materials. They're, they're great materials, they're world-class. You can donate uh, through our website at www.nasar.org. And if you can't do any of that, then find a local team that you can donate to there as well. So if you've got a local search and rescue team and you just don't have the time, help donate to them, help provide them with those funds they need to buy insurance for their folks, to buy equipment, to gas up their vehicles and do that sort of thing. If you've got a missing loved one or friend, call 911 right away. Rate times time equals distance. The longer you wait to call, the further away that person can be, especially with access to mass transportation or a vehicle or a friend with a vehicle. And so the longer that you wait, the bigger that search area gets as a big circle. And, and now you're talking about the person's not moving at 
two miles an hour on foot. They're, they're moving at 10 miles an hour on a bicycle. Now they're moving at 50 miles an hour in a car and they can get a long way away. And that, that search circle that we have to look for them gets bigger. And now we're at pi r squared, which is how big is the area of that circle. And it goes from reasonable to most of your state very quickly. And so call 911 right away. Second thing I would say is that if a search and rescue team approaches you because you've got someone missing and that team asks for money, close your door, go find someone else, work with law enforcement. Law enforcement has the ability to track that person through you know, their cell phone, through cameras, through ATM usage, through all those other social uh, guardian systems that we have out there that the law enforcement get, it, get into because they have the, the legal right to. They can get that person into NCIC and the missing persons file. So if they get out of state, somebody finds them as a John or Jane Doe, um, they can do that. So work with law enforcement uh, and, and work with those search and rescue teams that they recommend. Don't work with the folks that approach you on their own. Chris, you've been involved in some complicated search and rescue scenarios, as well as recoveries of victims' remains from some pretty extreme places, like north of the Arctic Circle. Can you share with us an example of the kind of situation you might be called into? Let's start with Lacey Peterson. She went missing on Christmas Eve uh, in the early 2000s out of Modesto, and we got a phone call for that because mutual aid works. That's not what was not our county. It was several counties away, but we were the closest team that had available resources. And we went looking for, and we spent uh, over the course of that investigation, several weeks on the San Francisco Bay diving because diving is part of search and rescue, right? Recovery. And then as her body was discovered and we started to build clues and uh, build a case, you know, it ends up being her husband, Scott Peterson, that uh, we believe is the primary suspect and we end up going to court and Scott is sitting on death row right now. He had an appeal recently and I believe that they're going to appeal the death uh, penalty part of his case, but he's still guilty of of the crime of murder of, of Lacey and his unborn son. And by the way, remember the kid who got separated from his parents at the county fair? One of the teams finds him in a bathroom. He'd had an accident. The poor kid had wet himself in the carnival area because he couldn't find a bathroom. And that's what he was looking for. And so once he found a bathroom, he was very embarrassed and he was sitting in the stall crying and he didn't want to come out. So we we helped him. We, uh, we, we got a shirt and we wrapped it around him and we brought him back to our command post and we got him into the bathroom and we got him cleaned up and we got him together with his folks. And we found him a little pair of sweatpants at one of the booths so he could uh, put them on and, and stay at the fair for the rest of the day. It's just that humanity thing that you want to help others. And that's our motto, that others may live. And it's also that others may enjoy their life and not suffer. So, Chris, any last thoughts for our listeners? Every time someone goes into the woods, they're, they're taking a little bit of a chance. We'd like them to minimize that risk whenever possible. Don't just rely on your cell phone or a GPS. We have a Hug a Tree program, which is available free on our website to help kids uh, understand what to do if they get lost. The name is self-explanatory, Hug a Tree. The more they're moving, the harder it is to find them. If they stay in one place, it's easier to find them. So... Um, that's what we're looking for. This is a good time to highlight the fact that when you park your car in a national park and you 
head off into that wilderness area that's so beautiful adjacent to the road. And there's that little kiosk with the guest book in it that you're supposed to sign into. That's not so they have a record to show grandma of who came to visit. It's so that people like Chris can go out and find you when you don't come back. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if you don't leave a plan, it makes our life so much harder and it'll take us longer to find you. And if you're injured, you'll suffer longer. And if you don't like being in pain, sign in, put something in your car that gives us an idea of where you're going and what you're doing. In the old days, we used to tell parents to take a piece of foil and right outside the car, put their kids' shoes on the foil to leave a shoe print so we know who we were tracking and leave that foil on their uh, on their dashboard. Nowadays, it's when you get there, take a picture of your kid so we know what the clothing is. Take a picture of the bottom of the sole of their shoes so we know who we're tracking. But same thing. The more information we have about who that person is and what they look like out in the wilderness, the quicker that we can find them. Chris Boyer, the executive director of the National Association of Search and Rescue, but more than that, my friend and a hero to many, including me. Thanks for sharing your story with us, Chris. And folks, if you're interested in NASAR, please visit their website at www.nasar.org. And if you want to get involved, talk with your local firefighters or police agencies. I'm sure they'd welcome the help. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.